Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve salatu ve selamu ala eşrafil enbiya'i ve mursalin. Seyyidina ve mevlana ve habibina Muhammedin ve ala ahlihi ve sahbihi ecma'in. Resuming then our uh, now quite long-standing series of lectures entitled Paradigms of Leadership. It's taken us in so many directions historically and geographically and uh, perhaps we've just begun to get a sense of the amplitude of the Sunnah ideal. So many Muslims nowadays think that the Sunnah is a way of restricting you into a particular bandwidth of the human potential. But uh, the whole history of the Ummah with all of our paradigms indicates that in fact it opens up the bandwidth and allows a wide range of different human types to uh, demonstrate the capacity <coughs> which God has created within them. This is perhaps one of the differences between ideological religion, as it is sometimes touted nowadays, which is essentially totalitarian, and classical religion, which allows us to grow into those positive uh, divine gifts which uh, each one of us has within him or herself. So it's been a complex journey here and there, but I felt that it would be perhaps indicative of a lack of courtesy if uh, in our list we didn't do justice to uh, Imam Ali, Shahi Mardan, Shiri Khuda, uh, Abu Hassan, Abu Turab, the great kind of paradigm of heroism, if you like, that has always captured the Muslim imagination. We've looked at uh, Sayyidina Othman, and in a sense this narrative picks up from that, but I don't want primarily to talk about dates and battles and uh, the outward uh, politics of the thing, even though, of course, he is an intensely political figure and a reminder that the amplitude of the Sunnah personality has to fill the political sphere of the human experience and exemplify the political virtues uh, as much as every other aspect of uh, the remarkable neuroplasticity which we have, this capacity to excel or to uh, repel in different areas of, of, of the human experience. But rather to focus, well, weaving our story around the, the narrative, the chronology, to look a little bit about what we can say about the inner story, the inner paradigm. Because Imam Ali occupies so many areas in the inspired Muslim imagination, and many of them are esoteric, are they not? There's hardly an esoteric tradition in Islamic civilization. A guild, for instance, a malamati, fraternity, the ahi, corporations, the ways in which Muslim civil society virtuously banded itself, sometimes medieval equivalents of the sort of rotary club and sometimes full-scale religious orders with severe disciplines, there's hardly been one that hasn't inspired itself with the example of Imam Ali, not so much his politics, although his politics is part of the whole, but his, as it were, inward siesta, his uh, inward magnitude. This is, of course, one of the areas in which our idea of a human paragon, stroke paradigm, 
is going to be a little bit different from that which is perhaps familiar to those who have been schooled in the West. The West has always had this tension, this difficulty, between, on the one hand, the founding sacred figure of Western civilization, taken to be Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, <coughs> and the imitatio Christi, the true paradigm is Christ himself, and the fact that so much of what is representative in his uh, paragon-like status is actually unrepeatable and can't be emulated. You can't also be God's only begotten son. There's just one. You can't also be an omniscient, all-creating baby in a manger. Just happened once. You can't be somebody who is always perfect, but as a human being you grow towards perfection. And this has been a tension for them in their model of sainthood. The imitatio Christi, yes, but at the same time the growth towards that which Jesus himself doesn't do, or at least, well, if you read the Gospels, you might see, well, he does learn carpentry or whatever it is, and he kind of grows in wisdom, but that's not the orthodox position, really, because the incarnation is always perfect. The non-engagement with the political Human societies have to engage with the political by definition, but Satan Asa doesn't do that. Render unto Caesar, he leaves it alone, according to the gospel authors anyway. The engagement with gender, marriage and so forth, that dimension <coughs> of human endeavour, not there either. <coughs> Whereas when we look at paradigmatic human perfection in the Islamic context, and probably in most religious contexts in the prehistoric, pre-modern world, we find all of those dimensions fully and naturally incorporated into the ideal of uh, heroic humanity. So the idea of the paradigm of leadership is kind of the idea of the hero, isn't it? And of course, as we noticed with Sukena and there are plenty of others, one of the startling things about early Islam is that there's plenty of... Uh, quite active women in the story, which you don't get, say, in the New Testament. Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene, Martha, and so forth, are kind of um, receptacles for the discussion. They don't actually take an active part, by and large, but the Sahabiyya really do. We might revert to that if we look at some of the great Sahabiyya and some of the great uh, females amongst the Tabi'in. <coughs> So there is a gendered dimension to this, uh, but when we look at Imam Ali, we are looking at really a great paradigm of muruwa, manly virtue. The Latin word virtus means manly. Vir is a man in Latin. It's that idea of the, the strong, decisive, risk-taking hero that protects his people and uh, changes the world for the better. And that obviously is one of the archaic inspirational ideas of the human imagination. When we look at the life of Imam Ali, we are inspired because so many really primordial ideals and principles are being triggered within ourselves. A uh, classic text on this is the 1949 book by Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. One of the really influential books, culturally speaking, not so much philosophically, of the 20th century. And here Campbell explores what he calls the monomyth, 
he oversimplifies, of course, but he tries to determine the fundamental inspirational narrative alchemical story which is behind all of the legends and stories and fairy tales and epics of human beings going back to Gilgamesh and as far back as there are records, which of course isn't really very far. And it's the male figure who differs, who cuts himself loose, both from the maternal world, goes forth to seek his fortune, etc., but also becomes a hero, and then through some kind of subtle transformative process of return, comes back as the king, the priest-king, in order to uplift and transform the world. That's an oversimplification, of course. But it's interesting, he gets this word for, uh, for this, the monomyth, uh, from uh, James Joyce. If you've ever tried reading Finnegan's Wake, good luck. <laughs> You, maybe you get that far, but it seems to have been his idea. And one reading of Finnegan's Wake, which Joyce thought was his best book, and therefore maybe the best book of <coughs> Anglophone literature in the 20th century, <coughs> was that it was also a contemporary, very kind of Hibernian uh, retelling of this ancient story of transformation, but down the ages, so it begins with Adam and Eve. Uh, if you're familiar with the characters, Earwicker is Adam, and Olivia Plurabelle is Eve, and then they have three children. Issy, who has two natures, is obviously Asa, because interestingly, the Irish name for Jesus is the same as the Quranic name, Asa, they say, uh, who, who has these two natures and is regarded as being uh, at the root of some of the, the problems that the book then imagines itself to be addressing. And then Shem and Sean, which are obviously representations of Isaac and Ishmael, hence the Jewish and the Islamic narrative. There's a lot of Quranic stuff in Finnegan's Wake, actually. But the point is this word, the monomyth, comes from that. He seems to have been, and he more or less says it in the book, uh, that he is hearing the tahaddi, uh, the Quran, challenges people to come up with even an ayah, which is like it. And so he's writing Finnegan's Wake in this unusual kind of iltifat style with pronouns pointing in different direction as Western literature's supreme attempt to do the Qur'an in the English language, but with the same kind of broad story about heroism, the fall, redemption, different sorts of religiosity. Anyway, it's an interesting footnote, perhaps. But the idea of the hero with these thousand faces present in Aboriginal mythology, Native American mythology, Gilgamesh, uh, the, the, the male warrior hero, the hunter, not so much the gatherer, the hunter, the ideal of the, the fully integrated figure of masculine virtue, virtus, represented, say, by the uh, Lakota Sioux of, of, of America before the Americans wiped them out and plied them with alcohol and shut them away in their reservations. But that idea of nobility, uh, the warrior bareback on the pony with the spear, fully physically and mentally and spiritually present with the invocations and the awareness of the sanctity of the landscape and the great spirit watching, the tribe judging, that idea of the hero and getting the buffalo, bringing it back so the female realm can then cut it up and 
nourish the children and each with its own idea of, of, of perfection. A very attractive model that somehow, despite the alienness of those cultures, there's something instinctual within us that automatically responds to that and says yes. Which is why you know, quite a lot of cultural figures in the second half of the, the 20th century acknowledged that they'd been uh, using um, uh, Campbell's idea of the monomyth. George Lucas, for instance, says, yeah, that's the story of Star Wars. Not the new Disneyfied woke Star Wars, which is all over the place, but the original Star Wars. Yeah, it's about the initiation, about warriorhood, about entering the world, about taking on evil. Um, yep, Watership Down as well. You might remember it from maybe a generation ago, Richard Adams' book about the, the rabbit hijra and the hero rabbit. He said, yep, Campbell was his model. And that's why those stories, however fanciful they might appear, galaxy far, far away, well, how likely is it really, immediately push very ancient buttons within us. And this is part of what we mean when we say Islam is the religion of the fitrah, that it offers us human types which are truly archetypal and buried in some deep, you don't have to adopt the Jungian system, which is problematic in many ways, but there's something deep down within us that starts to light up ancient neglected circuit boards at the bottom of the human consciousness that say, yes, well, we know who that is. And so when we see somebody like Imam Ali, we say, yes, certainly, not an alien story, despite the Arabian foreignness of it all. Uh, but yeah, we can relate to this. And this is part of the, the immediacy of the seerah itself, why it's such a page turner, because it's one of those timeless stories that uh, activate this, this longing that we have for the one who will let us out. And this, of course, is the exact opposite of the modern thing, whereby there isn't really a hero. Uh, there is a kind of indifference to past, to narratives. A lot of young people nowadays don't know their past, don't know their heritage, don't know their history, don't care at all. They're completely alienated and detached. Neither do they have the idea of transcending themselves because the self is what they are and the world is saying be yourself not transcend yourself it's the perverse inversion of the traditional ideal of what the the youth the kung fu seeker or whatever should be doing overcome the self the self has a witch in it it's it's something to be to be overcome no, we don't do that any longer and instead the be yourself is all about whatever you feel you are don't let anybody else interrupt your desire to be that wispy, vague thing. The 12-year-old boy who thinks he's a girl, everybody bows their head and says, yes, you're a girl. And here's the medication and the puberty blockers. And it's become the opposite of the traditional ideal. No longer there is the initiation into manhood or womanhood, but instead, ooh, be who you feel you are, which is causing all manner of increasingly evident dysfunctions, and actually Nietzsche talks about this. We think of Nietzsche as this kind of crypto-Nazi believer in a superman who transcends good and evil, but it's not really like that. He's not even an atheist in a conventional sense. He's just preternaturally aware of where the mediocrity of the machine age and the um, homogenizing of uh, the human experience is, is leading. This is the idea of the last man if you read him on The Last Man, you'll see it. it's exactly how we are nowadays. 
immensely concerned with status, with compliance, with material treats, with uh, what are people thinking about me, um, but no idea of, of heroism standing on the mountaintop contemplating the divine, not really. If you go up the mountaintop, it's probably because you're in Lycra and there's a drone uh, watching you and you're going to get lots of hits on YouTube and it's, it's the ego that's conquered the mountain, not you conquering your mountain, your ego, so you can get... Uh, it's, it's profoundly subversive. So Nietzsche talks about something which he thinks it is the nature of modernity to let go of, which is what he calls Rausch, which is a feeling of kind of completeness and fulfilment. That experience of the Lakota brave when he has successfully dragged the buffalo back. I've done it. Here I am. I have completed my vocation. And it's not about sitting around the campfire and scratching my head. It's about action. It's about sacrifice. It's about risk-taking. Um, so he talks about this, and he identifies it really as Muslims would, as the, the loss of the primordial like a lot of 19th century thinkers, including Freud, he's convinced that modernity is leading us into increasing madness and dysfunction because we're no longer occupying the kind of space that we were designed by heaven or evolution or accident or whatever uh, to occupy. We're alienated, so we're sick. This is in his book, Genealogy of Morals. Uh, so I found an interesting quote in Nietzsche, interestingly, which indicates the state of a lot of modern Muslims, because deprived of the inward jihad, which is you know, the regime has closed the Sufi lodge or the sheikh has died or whatever, and everything is about the external aspect of religion and their sense of humiliation. So this is what he says. When some men fail to accomplish what they desire to do, they exclaim angrily, may the whole world perish. This repulsive emotion is the pinnacle of envy, whose implication is, if I cannot have something, no one can have anything. No one is to be anything. It's exactly how they are, the kind of suicidal destructiveness of it. Uh, we can't control the world's trade, so let's smash the World Trade Center. We can't have the, the great mosque of Zengi in Mosul because we're losing Mosul, so let's blow it up as we leave. That kind of complete nihilistic... Uh, selfish determination that nobody will have anything at all. He, he talks about this as one of the possible outcomes of this uh, loss of primordiality and this externalizing. And this is the exact opposite of the virtue of Futuwa, which our tradition immediately identifies with Imam Ali. So the story he is Shahi Merdan, Shir Yezdan, Pishvaya, Ehlidin, Kashifi, Sirri, Vilayat, Haider, Karar, Mast. The king of the youths, the lion of God, refuge and pride of the people of religion, the revealer of the secret of sainthood, Haidari Karar. Haidar is the lion, Karar is the one who never retreats from battle. Is a million poems. And actually, I have talked about Imam Ali before, about 10 years ago for Quilliam Press, I did a presentation. This one's going to be a little bit different, uh, and I'll be looking a bit more at the literature, the Muslim way of being inspired by this uh, lion-like, leonine example. So first of all, the 
outward story. Ali bin Abi Talib, son of Abu Talib, Abu Talib is Abd Manaf, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, Ibn Hashim, Ibn al Mughayra, Ibn al Qusayr. So he's one of these big Qurayshi families. He's a noble in that double sense. Again, this is something that our mediocre, rauchless world doesn't quite understand uh, the quality of nobility and breeding because of the idea of self. Um, we don't really understand the idea of a natural aristocracy. Um, if you've been in the presence of it, you immediately see the, the charisma that comes from being brought up to certain noble values by a father who was brought up in that way sometimes for, for hundreds of years, where you see the real selfless, non-ego, aristocratic virtues. Very impressive thing. Yeah, I remember uh, Prince Otto von Habsburg. He died now, but before he died, he gave a talk at the Guildhall in London. And had history worked out differently, I mean, I guess he was one of my heroes, his extraordinary life, he would have been uh, the Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he even claimed to remember uh, when his uncle was assassinated in Sarajevo starting the First World War, so he really went back a long time. He was very sympathetic to Islam. But the, the presence of this guy who hadn't really had any titles for, uh, uh, for 70 years or something, he was a kind of... European-type executive. He was the one who tried to get the name of God mentioned in the European Constitution. So he comes to this talk at the Guildhall, which is full of kind of Lloyd's names and Baltic exchange traders and stockbrokers and so forth. And the presence is quite extraordinary. I'm kind of observing this, and it's as if he was in his kind of crown and furs and very extraordinary. A little skinny man, he was about 90-something at the time. Yeah, and he gave his talk about Europe and religion. And at the end of it, everybody stood up as he left. I've never seen anybody do that, let alone city slickers. But they just couldn't help themselves because of the aristocratic regal bearing of this man who seemed to come from a, a different world. Uh, very interesting to see that. Um, without detouring too far. Uh, if you have an idle hour, you can watch his funeral on YouTube. Stephansdom, the big cathedral in uh, Vienna. And everybody is there. It's as if the empire had never come to an end and all these Austrians somehow find their old hats and their uniforms and uh, quite remarkable. It was a very big deal in, in Austria, this last royal hero, because the Austro-Hungarian monarchy was actually really loved. And you see the Bourbons are at the front and the Habsburgs and then Prince Philip is somewhere right at the back because <laughs> the House of Saxe-Coburg is really nothing in European traditional royal protocol. Yeah. And then the funeral cortege took him to the Church of the Capuchins in Vienna, which is where the, they're buried. And then the royal marshal in his fancy dress goes up and hits with his staff three times the gate of the chapel. And the monk inside says, who's there? And then the, uh, the marshal recites all of the titles of Otto, who's there waiting in his coffin. 
Margrave of Upper Silesia, Grand Duke of Bohemia and blah, blah, and it goes on. And then the papal titles, Knight of the Holy Grail, Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, blah, blah, and kind of. <laughs> and they don't open the door. And so he tries again. And he recites all of the titles. And they don't let him in. And then finally, the marshal says, not the titles, but he just says, I mench a man. And the monks open the door, and he goes in, and he's buried with his ancestors. And so that's the traditional idea, where you can still find it, of aristocracy with all of its failings. Where you see it really working, it is about service and humility and a kind of nobility that in our mediocre, bland age is something that you don't often see. Anyway, so here we're talking about real nobility, a kind of gravamen dignity that is from ancestry. And that, of course, is the entire idea of the Ahl al-Bayt, isn't it? They're a kind of aristocratic line, literally. al Dasas, holy prophet, says heredity is true. So his descendant of Qusay is from the nobles of the city of Mecca. Other titles. One of the ten granted knowledge of paradise while they lived. He is Abu Turab, father of dust. You often get this in, in our literature. Why is he the father of dust? This is a very Futuwa type thing. <laughs> Good parenting lesson here. He was once angry with Fatima in their little house angry with his wife and presumably remembers the prophetic instruction about anger whoever feels something of that let him lie down and so in this anger he goes out and he lies down next to the wall of the mosque the holy prophet finds him and finds this dust on him and brushes it off and that's why he gets his name Abu Turab in the old Medina, they used to know where the place was and they would point it out. It would be one of the places you would visit. So the father of dust. And this is really important for the Futuwa principle. And actually, Ebu Turab was his favourite name. That's the name that he liked to be addressed by, father of dust. Hadith scholar, narrated 586 hadiths, Ibn Mas'ud, Ibn Abbas, Al-Hassan, Al-Hussein, obviously, um, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyah, particularly the Ahl al-Bayt, but uh, others as well. Uh, he's a significant uh, narrator of hadith. Now, we know cousin and son-in-law of the Holy Prophet, both of those things, but also kind of like a son, because um, his father, Abu Talib, like many, even of the high-born in Mecca, were suffering from the, uh, well, not climate change, but the very difficult uh, circumstances of living in that city. And there came a time when Abu Talib couldn't cope with uh, all the children in his house. Uh, and so some of them were kind of placed with, not fostered or adopted, but placed with other family members. So Jafar, who is Ali's famous brother, um, is placed with Umm al-Fadl, whose story with Abu Lahab, some of you might recall. And then Imam Ali, as a boy, is placed with Sidna Muhammad and Khadija. 
He was about five at the time. We know that he, well, he's said to have been the first to have accepted Islam after Khadija did, after the Iqra and the Zamiluni and the Ya Ayuhal Muddathir, that episode, that tremendous episode when she was his refuge. Imam Ali, still a boy, was also in the house. Some people say he was 10, some people say he was less than that. Um, key role, of course, in the Hijra. These are all great stories, but we have to fast forward a little bit if I'm to get into my uh, literature. Um, the role of Ali on the Hijra is, of course, well-known. Jibril salam, has told the Holy Prophet of Quraysh's plan to assassinate him, the Knight of the Long Knives. And he tells Ali, and they agree that Ali will lie down in the Prophet's place in his green Hadrami gown, so that the assassins looking in will assume that the Holy Prophet is still there. And then he recites Surah Yasin. وَجَعَلْنَا مِنْ بَيْنِ أَيْدِيهِمْ سَدًّا وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ سَدًّا فَأَغْشَيْنَاهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُبْصِرُونَ uh, and the Holy Prophet leaves the house and the onlookers in the dark don't see him. Then he goes to the house of Abu Bakr and then out through the back window there's two camels. This is the story. And you, you see this juxtaposition of the two, Abu Bakr and Ali, in many ways, which we'll be talking about uh, a little bit later when we talk about ways in which the Sunni and the Shi'i reception of this memory have differed but also converged. The Hijra takes place, and then the Pact of Brotherhood in Medina between the Ansar and the Muhajirin, the famous moment when the Holy Prophet takes the hand of Ali and raises it up and says, This is my brother. Cousin, actually, but brother. So, Then there begins, of course, the, the, the growth to the political and social economic transformation of Arabia and the dethroning of the old pagan oligarchies. So, and incidentally, one reason why I'm doing this subject now is that we're kind of on the edge of Muharram. And as many of you will know, we have a reading of the Raudat al-Shuhada in Cambridge every Muharram. Um, it's been our tradition for about 15 years, I think. Okay, so here is uh, something about the life of Imam Ali. I said I wanted to do a lot of literature today. Uh, and this is from uh, the Raudat al-Shuhada, which is still the most popular Muharram narrative of the Ahlul Bayt. Um, it's a Sunni work, but it's used by Shia as well, uh, the author. Hossein Vaiz Kashafi was a Naqshbandi uh, Hanafi Maturidi from um, Herat in modern-day Afghanistan, but he writes the great book, Radha to Shahada, Garden of the Martyrs, about the Ahlul Bayt. So here's the, the chapter which is specifically on Imam Ali, traditionally recited on the fifth day of Muharram. The Rauda is, if you go to some of the big posh gatherings, Mahafil in Hyderabad, for instance, they do something every night. Um, and this is Imam Ali's on the fifth night. So, now Ali's name be praised to the sky, a champion brave and strong, 
one heart with two blades in his sword did defy the hate of the heathen throng. In the thirteenth spring of the elephant's year did Abu Talib smile. The line of God in this world did appear full free of pride and guile. Then Providence placed him in prophecy's house as cousin to the chosen one. When Gabriel came, God's truth to announce, straightway to that truth he won. He married the light of God's chosen one, that Fatima al-Batul. Of worldly wealth he was owner of none, illa irthar rasul, except the inheritance of the messenger. At peace he lay in his holy teacher's place, Harun in Musa's stead. A Yemeni robe veiled the sight of Quraysh, and thus his master sped. At Uhud and Badr and Hunayn was he seen, where swords flashed like the sun. The rallying cry from the hill and ravine was, Know that our God is one. La fata illa Ali comes the cry, alone see him slay Walid. The champions of Khaybar thought to defy his sabre but did concede. The city of knowledge took him for its gate, two guards stood watch each side, its towers watched by the road that is straight, its master the seer guide. No beggar heard rebuke at his door, he worked the fields for a wage, he gave his humble fare to the poor, he had nor serf nor page. The treasures of Persia and Rome at his feet, his eye never glanced that way. Instead of the palace of Kufa so sweet, he slept on sand and hay. Ibn Tayyar came to call him for the prayer. <coughs> he reached the prayer hall gate. Then Ibn Muljam, his blade in the air, he slew him in violent hate. Thus while he lived and also as he died, he filled the world with signs. All noble youth take Ali as their guide. His saintly courage shines. Very classical general eulogy. Um, Madh of Imam Ali, radiallahu anh. And indeed, very often the stress is on his shahama, his knightly heroism, his manly virtues in the, the field of battle. And he was, as the poem said, there at Badr and Uhud and all of the battles except for the battle of the, <coughs> the uh, raid on Tabuk because he'd been made uh, governor of Medina during that time. Badr, famously, he carries the black banner of the Muhajirin, and it's at Badr where he first shows his prowess in single combat, stepping out in front of the Muslim lions and the Quraysh and their champion, um, Al-Walid ibn Abi Jahl, and in the sight of everyone, um, he, he defeats him and kills him. The Battle of Uhud also, Abu Sufyan is really angry that both of his standard bearers have been killed at the Battle of Badr, and he gives the standard of Quraysh to a really huge, powerful man, Talha, who is from the Abdaddar family of Mecca. Talha then strides out in this very kind of ancient samurai-like sort of display of manly virtue. You couldn't imagine <laughs> in a modern war people doing anything like this. Um, modern war has none of this real sort of dignity and nobility about it. Modern warfare is press a button and some city blows up or depleted uranium shells blow up Saddam Hussein's tanks or something. It's a completely different model of warfare. Very cruel and primitive compared to uh, medieval times. So Talha steps forward, Ali steps forward uh, and there's a long fight 
and Ali kills him in single combat, and he becomes really <coughs> renowned throughout Arabia for this. Um, it's said that on the day of Uhud, um, that Imam Ali receives 16 wounds. Sa'id ibn Musayyib is the witness this, so he's very much at the front line. But his best known exploit, which um, Kashafi mentions, is the siege of Khaybar. These are times before gunpowder, and a fortress is not so easy to uh, reduce. And on the eve of the attack, <coughs> and this is narrated by Bukhari and Muslim, Holy Prophet says, I will give this standard to a man at whose hand the conquest will take place, who loves God and his messenger, and who is loved by God and his messenger. Makes this announcement. Of course, everybody is agog. That night round the campfires, everybody is saying, who's it going to be? So that people spent much of the night discussing who's going to be given it. Holy Prophet says, where is Ali ibn Abi Talib? You can't see him. And people are saying, he's got <coughs> an infection in his eye. Send for him. Holy Prophet spat and pressed the saliva to each eye and he was healed <coughs> as if nothing had been wrong with him. So he gives him the flag. And famously, in the great charge, <coughs> arrows showering down. With his great strength, he's able to pull up the door of the fortress from its hinges. If you've seen traditional hinges, they're not like the modern ones, but it's just a kind of spindle pushed into a receptacle. <coughs> he lifts it up, carries it on his back, and the Muslims charge in, and the fortress of Khaybar is captured. So this is one of the thousand faces of the hero, the great warrior, who brings about this new age in Arabia. But there's another aspect, which is marriage, of course. We've already seen the Abu Turab episode. He's married to the beloved daughter of the Chosen One, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, thereby becoming his son-in-law, as well as his cousin. Fatima at the time is 20. <coughs> <coughs> Ali has really been too ashamed to ask for her hand because of his real extreme poverty. He's living in a kind of hut without windows, sackcloth over the door near the mosque. <coughs> but the Holy Prophet agrees. Aram is sacrificed. Aisha makes the house ready, sprinkling soft sand. Very simple. 
you can imagine how basic it was. Just a sheepskin, a striped Yemeni piece of fabric. That's it. That's all there is in the house. And then another famous incident, uh, the Holy Prophet says to Um Ayman, bring me some water. And then again, his blessed saliva spits it into the water. And then Ali and Fatima come. <coughs> he tells Ali to sit in front of him and sprinkles some of the water over his head, his chest and his arms. Then he calls Fatima, who in kind of awe of her father, almost trips as she comes in. She's looking down. He does the same, and then he makes famous prayer for them and for their children. So, since it's nearly Muharram, I want to read another poem from the Ralba. And this is actually translated from, not from Keshefi, but by somebody called Mehmed Esad Erbili, <coughs> dies in 1931 who is one of the last really great Khalidi Naqshbandi sheikhs of Turkey, who had had his own uh, zawiya in Üsküdar and had been head of the majlis of the sheikhs that the Ottomans created before it was abolished. <coughs> Ataturk, of course, had the sheikhs killed or imprisoned. Um, but this one was particularly difficult because Everybody loved him. He wrote the famous Kenzel Erfan, which is a hadith collection. I've not seen it, but it's said to be a commentary on 100,000 hadiths. <coughs> and he has a famous diwan in Turkish and Persian. And was a saint, the, the great heir of the Naqshbandiya in Turkey at the time. So eventually Ataturk has him poisoned in prison. And Turks nowadays will tell you terrifying stories about what happened to the general who ordered that. Anyway, so this is <coughs> a version of one of his many poems about Fatima de Zahra. Recall the father and mother pure, perfect parents to every faithful heart. One day did think on the garden shore, yearning, burning, all for that land apart. Then came an angel with wondrous news, falling like an apple from heaven's bower. The garden's lord loved that couple fair, so Khadija brought forth that perfect flower. <coughs> In days of darkness the heathen cried, let the moon be split by this chosen one. With tongues like serpents they all denied, open wide their eyes could not see that sun. Their scorn weighed hard on Khadija's heart, Ah, alas, cried she to her holy spouse. But then her womb did good news impart. Fear not, <coughs> God shall save servants of his house. No other lady shall be her peer. God's own nature makes her the prophet's pride. The shining names of that daughter dear, signalling the virtues of Ali's bride. <coughs> the shining lady the chaste and pure, mother of two sons, each a perfect guide, the modest daughter, ever demure, queen of women who paradise abide. A noble father, this word did say, Fatima's a piece of my flesh, he said, whoso shall harm her doth God betray, so too doth he harm me, thus he said. 
that child breathed deep of his perfume sweet. Like her soul, his soul, <coughs> in his steps she trod. Water and bread ground from humble wheat. In the joy of faith did they serve their God. So thirteen years ere the hijra was, dwelt she humbly in her father's house. With many angels she served his cause, filled the world with light as she served her spouse. Sahira, flee from the burning blaze. Seek forgiveness for all your evil days. Give prayers and blessings and always praise she whom God did keep from all evil ways. <coughs> Again, Fatima to Zahra. There hasn't been a Muslim poet who hasn't referred to her with awe and respect. The next key symbolic event is the uh, so-called Mubahala. This is later in the Medina period when the delegations that were forward come uh, to the Holy Prophet ﷺ, to reconcile themselves to his project of the unification of Arabia <coughs> and the end to the tribal wars. And this is a Christian delegation led by the Bishop of Najran. In this Mubahala, they dispute with the Muslims over the nature of Christ. The bishop says, he was born of a virgin, this proves his divinity. But Islam points out, of course, and the Holy Prophet voices this, that Adam had neither father nor mother, but he was not divine. <coughs> the dispute continues, and to resolve it, a test of sincerity is devised. Very interesting way of uh, bring about a resolution. <coughs> Each side will bring the ones they love most and together they will pray to God to bring his curses upon the party that is lying. <coughs> and the Holy Prophet brings Ali, Fatima, Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein places them underneath a cloak, the Aba. And when one of the monks sees this and sees who they are, he goes to the bishop and says, I don't think we should do that. You know, these are people of some spiritual acuity, and when they see the quality of those people, the luminosity, they think, well, we don't want to be cursed by them. And so they kind of apologize and they withdraw. So next we get into the story of his Khilafah, fast-forwarding a bit again. Uh, as you recall, perhaps from the uh, lecture on Hazrat Osman, the Muslims are divided <coughs> as to what should happen next. This shock event, this kind of chaotic situation that nobody had really predicted or anticipated or wanted even, uh, some of those <coughs> who had been involved in what looks like looks to have been a conspiracy invites Ali to become Khalifa, but he refuses. He says, I won't be Khalifa, I won't be Amir al-Mu'mineen, but I'm happy to be his advisor. Talha and Zubair are also offered this, but they refuse. So there's a power vacuum and the rebels in this chaotic situation in Medina 
give them 24 hours to decide. <coughs> the gathering in the mosque, waiting for the decision. And reluctantly, Imam Ali agrees. so Imam Ali is in his house and everybody is saying Amir al-Mu'mineen will be Ali. <clears throat> and they came into his house and said we want to pledge our allegiance. And he says that is not for you to decide. It should be the decision of those who are present at Badr. Whoever is uh, acceptable to the people of Badr, he is the Khalifa. And then all of the people of Badr who are still alive came one by one to the house of Ali seeking <coughs> to pledge their allegiance to him. Yatlubun al-Bay'ah. But still he didn't accept. فَلَمَّا رَأَى عَلِيٌّ ذَلِكَ مِنْهُمْ خَرَجَ إِلَى الْمَسْجِدْ وَسَعِدَ الْمِنْبَرِ But when Ali saw that this was just continuing to happen, he went out to the mosque and stood on the minbar. فَحَمِدَ اللَّهَ وَأَثْنَى عَلَيْهِ ثُمَّ قَالْ He praised God and then said, أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ رَضِيْتُمْ بِي أَنْ أَكُونَ عَلَيْكُمْ أَمِيرًا O people, you are satisfied that I should be the ruler over you. Then <coughs> the first person to go to him to pledge allegiance was Talha and then Az-Zubair and then <coughs> the other companions of Allah's Messenger. And then when he descended again, people were just abuzz talking about the assassination of Uthman. Some were saying that he was killed because of uh, his injustice. Others said he was killed and he was the victim of injustice. فَلَمَّا رَأَى عَلِيٌّ إِخْتِلَافَ النَّاسِ فِي قَتْلِ عُثْمَانِ سَاعِدَ الْمِنْبَرَ خَطِيبًا وقال, And when Ali saw that people were just talking about what had happened with Uthman, he went back up the minbar and said, أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ أَقْبِلُوا عَلَيَّ بِأَسْمَاعِكُمْ وَأَبْصَارِكُمْ إِنَّ النَّاسِ إِثْنَانْ وَثَلَاثَةً لَا سَادِسَ لَهُمْ مَلَكٌ طَارَ بِجَنَاحِهِ أَوْ نَبِيٌّ أَخَذَ اللَّهُ بِيَدِهِ أَوْ عَامِلٌ مُجْتَهِدٌ أَوْ مُؤَمِّلٌ يَرْجُو أَوْ مُقَصِّرٌ فِي النَّارِ أَوْ أَحَدٌ أَدَّبَ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةَ بِأَدَبَيْنِ بِالسَّيْفِ وَالصَّوْتِ لَا حِوَادَةَ عِنْدَ السُّلْطَانِ فِيهَا فَاسْتَتِرُوا بِسِتْرِ اللَّهِ وَأَصْلِحُوا ذَاتَ بَيْنِكُمْ So basically what he's saying is that people are in six categories. This is one of his famous khutbas. In five categories, there is no sixth. There is an angel flying with his wings. There is a prophet whose hand is taken by God. 
there is somebody who works hard in ibadah. There is somebody who postpones things in idle hope. And there is somebody who is in a state of shortcoming in hellfire. But what is required is for somebody to discipline this ummah with the sword and the voice. Somebody who wishes to do this <coughs> must accept rulership. So seek God's protection and reckon, be reconciled one to another. But what he's saying in this, and it, it's a long khutbah in his kind of firework Arabic, is <coughs> you don't really know who is who. You don't know which category you are or which category he was. Uh, always give others the benefit of the doubt. And this becomes the basis for the mainstream position of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een. Give people the benefit of the doubt, respect people, say radiallahu anhum, and move on. And then he went off to the treasury, opened it up and distributed everything that was in it to the Muslims. <coughs> and then some of the other Sahaba come and pledge their allegiance to him. Yeah, and then the famous incident uh, with Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha, the, the so-called Battle of the Camel, although it wasn't really a battle at all. She, as far as we can tell, and the sources here, of course, are quite contentious. Many of the later historians are taking sides or expressing their preferences. <coughs> really getting to the bottom of things is not going to be so easy, but we know her as the beloved of the Chosen One, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he was not... Uh, mistaken in judging personalities. She was another of these towering figures. And very often we find subsequent generations of Muslims trying to rank people. Mm. The great Sahaba and the greatest of the Khalafad, who is greater and who is less great. I've always found that a, a strangely modern kind of thing to do, like league tables or rankings. Uh, and the complexity and the profundity of the human soul, which is the basis on which these judgments have to be made, uh, really makes that really strange in many ways. We're like uh, little worms looking up at great giants, trying to figure out who is the taller and stronger, and we're not in a position to do that. Uh, and so the wise position is always to acknowledge all of them as being odol, upright witnesses, and as being giants. Otherwise, uh, who are we to say he was better than him and she was... It's uh, meaningless, particularly at this great historical distance. Um, so we have this, this episode of these two giants taking different views. And it's clear from, you know, she was a poetess, and uh, we have things from her, that she was not against Hazrati Ali at all. She was more about trying to bring about justice for her kinsmen, Othman, against those ruffians who were not really part of Ali's camp at all, uh, who had been responsible for suddenly breaking into the caliph's house and assassinating him, and who are now kind of embarrassing Ali by supporting him, supporting him strongly, although he was trying to keep his distance from them. 
Right. So that the outcome of it is that it's indecisive. <coughs> and Ali sends her back, Mukarramatan, honoured, um, with a retinue back to Makkah. Next episode uh, is that of Muawiyah, governor of Syria. And this is another area in which um, Muslims seem to be uh, divided into different groups. And this is really a kind of spiritual question rather than one that can be resolved through looking once again for the millionth time at the historical record to try and determine who was the taller, uh, although it's human nature, but it's uh, really a, a futile exercise because you're dealing with intentions and you're dealing with these enormous personalities, all of whom are negotiating and being transformed by the <coughs> extraordinary light that has been unleashed by the uh, prophetic moment and which they all, according to their particular personalities, are receiving and implementing differently. So you might say that there are the, uh, the dividers and the protractors, <coughs> those who believe that if we just work hard enough at those ancient books, we will be able to demonstrate who is right and who is wrong. The only sure outcome of that is that the Muslims remain divided. That's the only real outcome that those revisitations have. There are others who say, well, let's just leave it to God. This is a kind of irjat position, so they just kind of <coughs> leave it to the future. But there are others who, and this tends to be the way of the... <coughs> Sufi reception of these stories, which, as we'll see later, is very much concordist and trying to say it's not either or, but both and in complex and uh, inspiring ways, would say, yeah, the enormous, immeasurable power of the Qur'anic light which shone in these transformed souls reflected itself in the expression of certainties in different ways that sometimes collided. Giants can be real giants, but can not always see eye to eye. So there's a way in which the differences can be recognised without us having to get into the league table business, which I think in our culture, which is very much a culture of inclusion and reconciliation and drawing a veil over real or imagined faults, that's a much more authentically uh, Quranic response. So I'm running late but uh, many of you will already be aware of the dispute with Muawiyah, governor of Syria, who had been the recipient of a prophetic prayer. Allahumma allimhu al-kitab wal-hisab waqihi al-adhab. Oh Allah, teach him writing, calculation, and keep him away from um, uh, your punishment. Muawiyah was also interested in speeding up the investigation into the assassination of Othman and the famous event at Safin, another battle that wasn't really a battle. A few people seem to have been hurt, but <laughs> again, these uh, giant personalities with their absolute certainty sometimes took different points of view, and that's part of the 
amplitude of classical Islam, which is not totalitarian the way of <coughs> a lot of believers would like it to be. And some modern believers think, well, the seller for the ideal community, why is it that they disagreed on this? Well, <laughs> part of being an excellent human being is that you are prepared to stand up for your own convictions, even though there's ikhtilaf with somebody else. This is not like the Nazi party, where everybody has to be identical in everything. No, this is a real human community in which the prophetic light is refracted in different ways. So you have the proposal by Muawiyah of arbitration at Sifin because the armies really can't bring themselves to, uh, to fight. And then the division becomes more complex, the beginning of the Khawarij movement, 12,000 from Ali's army who thinks you can't really sort this out by uh, some kind of bureaucratic procedure, kind of committee resolving something so important in religion. So these zealots, mostly Tamimis from Central Arabia, march out and they go to the banks of the river at uh, Naharawan. And Ali goes out to reason with them. Some of them return from their error. Others persist. So this is the beginning of the sort of roulette or absolutist position. They're against everybody, really. They're against Uthman, they're against Muawiyah, they're against Ali. They're just Puritans on their own. These are the, the Khawarij. Uh, and they become... Uh, Assassins. They are, in the eyes of many, the kind of prototype of the ISIS-type assassin. Um, one of them, Ibn Muljam, was in love with a Kharijite woman, Qutam, said to be a beautiful woman of her age, etc. And uh, she was one of these zealots. And she said, I'll only marry you uh, if you give me three things. لا أتزوج بك إلا على ثلاثة آلاف وعبد وقينة وقتل علي ابن أبي طالب. I'll marry you, but my dowry is going to be three thousand gold coins, and a slave and a singing girl, and the assassination of Ali. Okay. Can imagine what she was like. So he poisoned his sword, goes into the mosque in Kufa. Ali is calling the people to the prayer. Ibn Muljam brings out his sword and hits Ali a massive blow from behind. Drops his sword, people grab him. Ali is taken back to his house, <coughs> dies shortly afterwards. Ibn Muljam is put to death. So this again, like the killing of Othman, indicates something about the emergent tendencies of the civilization to ikhtilaf and the way in which the civilization ultimately accommodates that is by saying ikhtilaf, as long as it's not lethal, is a natural phenomenon in this final religion which is to be all-embracing, shamil, khatam. This isn't a model of a single pope who lays down a magisterium which is the only right thing to believe. Islam has, in its majoritarian formulations, sought to welcome a plurality of views. And this is, again, something that a lot of modern Muslims don't like, because they want the Islamic answer to everything. Well, when I 
finish off and talk a bit about the Futuwa principle associated with Imam Ali, we'll see that, as it were, Imam Ali's idea of Futuwa is that principle which ultimately enabled the majoritarian Sunni Jama'i form of Muslim scholarship to regard these things uh, in a positive light. So Imam Ali, quoted by the Nahj al-Balagha, a lot later, says, With regard to me, two groups of people shall be destroyed, namely he who loves me to excess, so that love takes him away from what is correct, and he who hates me so much that hatred takes him away from the truth. <coughs> the best person with regard to me is he who follows the middle course. So be with him and be with the great majority of Muslims, because Allah's hand of protection is with the maintenance of unity. You should beware of division, because the one isolated from the group is a prey to shaitan, just as the one isolated from the flock of sheep is a prey to the wolf. Beware. Whoever calls to this course of sectarianism, fight him, even though he may be under this banner of mine. So we don't want to talk too much about the much later, as it were, religionizing of what were initially just sort of administrative disputes. Uh, it's outside my competence, apart from anything else, but it cannot be coincidental that this ummah, which is described by heaven as ummah marhuma, an ummah on which there is the kind of divine mercy, uh, with its great ulama, many of whom from the Ahlul Bayt, and its great traditions of wilaya, the majoritarian form of Islam, has favoured not taking sides. In other words, a sahaba kulluhum adul, the companions are all upright witnesses. The criteria for that are quite exhaustive to be a proper upright witness in a sharia course. court. You have to be really blameless. And this is the position that was taken. And there is in this, it seems to me, a kind of latter-day revisiting of Islam's understanding of the divisions that allegedly took place between Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The descendants of Isaac said, we alone are heirs to the promise. Ishmael is the wild man, banished, dry root, sent out into the wilderness. So it becomes a binary. But part of the vision of the Muhammadan intervention in sacred history is that it includes, it says, Isaac and Ishmael. The Bani Ishaq produce so many Anbiya. And the Bani Ismail produce ultimately the miracle of uh, the Hajj and Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu wasallam and the Khatam. So it's part of the vision of Islam in sacred history to include rather than to like these binaries, a lot of binaries in the book of Genesis. And all of them, if you look at the way in which Islam receives them, if it's, if it's interested at all, in some of them it isn't really, are about bringing together. And this, particularly in the Sufi tradition, becomes a kind of ethos. That's what characterizes the people of Sufism. Sabilun nasi fi wa sabilun qawmi fi the way of ordinary people is difference and argument. And the way of the people, the Sufis, is reconciliation. So let's look a little bit more some of these uh, 
text with apologies for uh, delaying your lunch. Um, but I did say that I wanted this primarily to be looking at the literature and just skating over the outlines of, of the story. Uh, <coughs> one thing that often arises is uh, there's disputes over the worms looking up at the four caliphs and trying to see who is highest and why and in what way. But the another issue that arises is Abu Bakr and Ali. We know that Imam Ali is basically the fountainhead of the Sunni Sufi tariqas. Uh, but the Naqshbandis uh, believe that Abu Bakr is the first figure in the silsila, and the Naqshbandiya are the largest, probably, tariqa and have a considerable extent in uh, this country. So sometimes popularly this is taken to be a kind of tension, but it's not. And I want to explain how this works, uh, drawing attention once again to the mainstream Islamic desire to reconcile itilaf, to bring people together, by looking at one of the great works of the 19th century Naqshbandiya, the sheikh with two intermediaries of Sheikh Esad Erbili, who we looked at earlier in his poem on Hazrati Fatima, radiallahu anha, and this is Maulana Khalid, dies in 1826, buried in the Kurdish district of Damascus. Um, and the, the scholar who really revives the Naqshbandiya throughout the Middle East uh, and Turkey. <coughs> Not so much the Balkans, the Naqshbandi lines in the Balkans tend to function in a different way, and sometimes it's an older version of the Naqshbandiya, as I understand it. Um, but, yeah, Maulana Khalid, and he has this diwan, one of the great monuments of Naqshbandi literature. It's um, mostly in Persian. And he begins with his munajat. I'd like to just read a little bit from this, where he is explaining how the Siddiqi affiliation of the Naqshbandiya works with the Alid affiliation of the tradition of the Ahlil Bayt. And it's important, I think, to, to understand this, not only to look at the mechanics of how the silsila works, but also to see the, <coughs> the mindset which wants to bring about a kind of concordist solution. So this is how his great poem starts. It, it's long. We won't be able to look at much of it, but we'll take it at least as far as the imam where the silsilas seem to come together, which a lot of people really misunderstand. Now, this is a monajet. خدا زنده به حقی اسمی عظم به نوری سیدی اولادی آدم. I'll do a rough translation. <coughs> oh my God, by the sanctity of the greatest names, by the light of the master of the children of Adam. So he's beginning with a kind of monajet uh, or invocation, reminding us and reminding the divine object of the poem is an address to God of, the, of what is truly great in his creation. So verse 2 is 
by the virtue of the 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 flame of light which was in the the soul of the Siddiq, by the virtue of Salmani, Farisi, and Qasim. Okay. <coughs> this is really important for all the Naqshbandi silsilas. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, this great companion of the Chosen One, uh, according to the Naqshbandi stories, the, the key spirituality of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was to do the dhikr silently, which is what most Naqshbandis do, whereas the tariqas that take their lineage to Imam Ali very often will use um, jahri, spoken or sung forms of dhikr. But figure number two uh, in the chain, Salman al-Farisi, Finger number three, figure number three is Al-Qasim. This is Qasim bin Muhammad bin Abu Bakr. He dies round about the year 107 of the Hijra. He's actually an important figure, one of the great muftis and hadith scholars of his time. There's a lot of his hadiths in Sahih Muslim. For instance, um, regarded as one of the seven fuqaha of Medina, um, studied under Abu Huraira, Abdullah bin Amr bin al-As, some of the great ones, some of the great Isnads come through him. Um, and uh, Al-Qasim uh, has three daughters who are famed for their piety and their scholarship. One of them is called Um Farwa. And she uh, marries Imam Muhammad al-Baqir and therefore becomes the mother of Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq. So, if you can get your mind around the kind of family tree situation here, Jafar al-Sadiq's mother is the great-granddaughter of um, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. Hmm. Incidentally, her mother was a certain Asma bin Abdurrahman uh, bin Abu Bakr, who is also from the lineage of, of Abu Bakr. Uh, so she's a kind of double great-granddaughter of Abu Bakr, and this is from the Naqshbandi point of view, why uh, there isn't really attention, because Ja'far al-Sadiq has this very powerful stream of irfan and knowledge and wisdom and siddiqiyah coming from Abu Bakr, as well as through the formal lineage, through Muhammad al-Baqir, Ali Zain al-Abideen, Imam Hussein and uh, Imam Ali. So that's really important, the Naqshi golden chain, which goes on to the present day, through Bahadin Naqshband, Abdul Khaliq Urj Devani, and so forth, uh, goes back to Ja'far al Sadiq, who we tend to think of if you don't really look into the sources as uh, the sixth Imam of the Shia. Well, mm, too big and capacious a soul to be just limited to that perspective. Uh, but also, fourth figure in the golden chain of the Naqshbandiyya, who we always associate as being the Sunni tariqa par excellence. But when you look into these texts, you'll see that for somebody like Maulana Khalid, it's not like that. It's not Sunnah against Shia, except for some exoterists who are uh, dividers. Uh, instead, the spiritual lineages of Islam interact and flow and certainly doesn't seem to have been a problem for Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq that he had the lineage of uh, Abu Bakr uh, Siddiq. So let's read a little bit more of this um, because he does 
It's something Nakhbandi in particular want to emphasize the affiliation to Imam Jafar. Bishahi softari karar haidar ki as ni ruyesh vishud babi haibar. By uh, the, the noble king who overcame the ranks of the powerful enemy, Haidar, the, the, the lion, uh, who with his own bare strength carried on his back the gate of the citadel of Khaybar. Nebud fasli bi rozigari zarish ki azrail udar bi zulfikarish. Hazrati Ali, karamallahu wajshahu, was the one who was so successful in the fortunes of war in using his sword, Dhul Fiqar, that it was as if he was the angel of death, Azrail. He was the tall cypress tree in the Prophet's garden the lamp in the palace of Futuwa, the manly virtue. So we'll have to fast forward. Yeah. Yeah, verse 12, Muhammad Ibaqir, Ankohi Mufakhir, Ke Az Nahrir Yish, is that? Nahrir Yesh Kuften Baqir. The one who was the summit of nobility and glory and the, the plunged the very depths of knowledge, Al Baqir, by his uh, merit. And then, Bihaqi Majma al Baharini Anvar, Kishodura Zi Siddiqu Ali Bar. So by the right of he who was the Majma al-Bahrain, the one who is the point at which the two oceans come together, uh, which was the way of the Siddiq and the way of Ali. So this is the understanding of what Imam uh, Ja'far was. Imam Sadiq wa Mastuqi Ja'far ke'in do mansab ura shud muyassar. Imam Sadiq the one who is also Mastuq, the one who is believed, Ja'far, who in this has the two roles and this was made easy for him. So Ja'far al-Sadiq, the commentary here has of course the details of the family tree. Ja'far al-Sadiq on the father's line, Muhammad al-Baqir, Ali Zain al-Abidin, Hazrati Hussein, Hazrati Ali. It's an esoteric thing that for some later generations became the basis of an exoteric madhab. And through the mother's line, Um Farwa, the scholar luminary of Medina, Qasim, Muhammad, Hazrati Abu Bakr. So there's that filiation as well, the mother and the, the father. Yeah. Anyway, there's a, then the Imam goes on. It's a very uh, long, beautiful poem, but he really wants to emphasize this. His, a figure of considerable political importance in the Ottoman Empire, spends a lot of time in Iraq, which is why they call him Khalid al-Baghdadi, where, of course, even in those days, there's Shi'i districts, Sunni districts, and as a uh, Naqshi Sufi, he really wants to create this way of overcoming that binary and demonstrating uh, that Ali is the city of knowledge for the Naqshbandis, 
as well as he is for anybody else. So just to, to finish a little bit with the Futuwa idea, La Feta Illa Ali, there is no chivalrous young man but for Ali, and this is understood as being uh, not so much prowess on the field of battle, but the inward state that enables but also regulates that, that prowess. So some examples of this inwardness which becomes the key Sufi principle of Futuwa. Here's something that I quite like. Once ten learned men approached Ali and said, we seek your permission for our putting a question to you. Ali said, you are at liberty. They said, of knowledge and wealth, which is better and why? Please give each one of us a separate answer. Ali gave the following ten answers. Number one, knowledge is the legacy of the prophets, wealth is the inheritance of the pharaohs, therefore knowledge is better than wealth. Number two, you are to guard your wealth, but knowledge guards you, so knowledge is better. Three, a man of wealth has many enemies, while a man of knowledge has many friends, hence knowledge is better. Number four, knowledge is better because it increases with distributions, while wealth decreases by that act. Number five, knowledge is better because a learned man is apt to be generous, while a wealthy person is apt to be miserly. Six, knowledge is better because it cannot be stolen, while wealth can be stolen. Number seven, knowledge is better because time cannot harm knowledge, but wealth rusts in the course of time and wears away. Eight, Knowledge is better because it is boundless while wealth is limited and you can keep account of it. Number nine. Knowledge is better because it illuminates the mind while wealth is apt to blacken it. Number ten. Knowledge is better because knowledge induced the humanity in our prophet to say to God, <coughs> we worship thee as we are your servants. While wealth engendered in Pharaoh and Nimrod the vanity which made them claim Godhead. So many hikam and wise things in the tradition. <coughs> An aspect of this futuwa is that although it represents fearlessness and manly virtue, it doesn't represent uh, the egotistic signaling of one's status. So Imam Ali famously used to ride a mule into battle. This is said to be the same duldul, the mule that was given to the Holy Prophet by the ruler of Egypt. Duldul Svar, he's the duldul rider. This was a little bit strange to some of the Arabs. Arabs, the world's best horses. So he was asked, why do you ride this mule (laughs) in the battle? Because the mules, they're quite strong but they can't really run fast. And he says, well, if a man is running away from me, then he's defeated. I don't need to chase him and attack him from behind. But I'm not going to run away from the battle. So I don't need a horse that's going to go fast. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, very different mentality to that which uh, prevails nowadays. Here's another one, uh, because his Aqdahum Ali, his famous state of, of, of being a good judge. Caliph Ali, the supreme head of the Muslim empire, the dauntless hero of a hundred battles, 
his favourite shield was stolen. All wondered who could have had the rashness of committing this crime. At last the shield was found with a Jew. Ali asked for the return of his shield. The Jew curtly replied, the shield is mine and it shall remain with me. The companions of the caliph got terribly furious at the impudent answer of this man. How does that foolish creature dare enrage Haidar, the lion, thought those who were present there. But lion though Ali was, he was Allah's lion. So he turned to his companions and said, No, you must not think of my position. The king and his subjects are equal in the eyes of law, and if necessary the caliph must seek the protection of the court of justice. Kufa was the capital of Ali, and the famous jurist Shureh was the qadi of Kufa. He'd been appointed to the post by Ali himself, so Ali sought the help of Shureh's court. The Jew was duly summoned, and he appeared before the court. The court was packed by visitors long before the trial began. The qadi came and took his seat. Ali passed through the assembled crowd, stood before the qadi, and greeted him with due respect. The Qadi did not leave his seat, nor did he show any other mark of respect to the Caliph. Qadi, have you stolen the shield of Ali? The defendant says, no, a false charge has been brought against me. The shield belongs to me, it is in my possession. The Qadi to Ali, have you any witness to prove that the shield is yours? Ali says, yes, my son Hassan and my servant Qanbar are my witnesses. Qadi says, I cannot rely on their evidence. Ali says, why? Do you think they will bear false witness? The Qadi says, never. I know you are closely related to the Holy Prophet and are perfectly pious. Further, I even believe that the door of paradise is open for you. But the Prophet's law is that the son's evidence in favour of the father and of the servant in favour of the master is inadmissible. So for want of proper evidence, your case is dismissed. And then the defendant comes to Ali and says, unimaginable, wonderful. This is a unique law that respect not even the position of the caliph and the man who promulgated it must not have been an ordinary human being. Amir al-Mu'mineen, the shield was really yours, please take it. But with it, please take something more that was not yours. From today, my body, my heart and my allegiance are yours. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his apostle. There's lots of other stories about this kind of rigour for justice, but also generosity. Another story that you often find is that Imam Ali was in one-to-one combat with a man in the thick of battle, and the man lost his sword and was unarmed before Imam Ali. And the man didn't know what to do and said, I have no sword. Imam Ali gives him his own sword. And this is regarded as an example of the fact that he would never refuse a gift. If somebody else needed something, he would always give it to him. And the man is kind of completely dumbstruck. Uh, And he lets the sword fall and he says, you're not an ordinary human being. I I can't fight with you. So our literature is full of these things. But just to close, the virtue which these people are all attributing to him is the virtue of... Futuwa. Um, which is the virtue of ensuring that your outward and your inward life is balanced. 
uh, one of the things that the Kharijites didn't understand and that possibility which is with us today doesn't understand is the, the size of the non-negotiable magnificence of the external law, the Sharia, sometimes preoccupies people so much that intentionality and mercy and context, justice itself can be lost sight of. You might call it uh, penny-farthing Islam. If you remember those penny-farthing bikes, one enormous wheel and one tiny little one. Uh, and uh, people who are riding those things rather than a proper bicycle, it's like the Sharia is this huge thing that kind of they have to jump up to get on it because it's so big. And the Barton side of Islam is just a little thing that they hardly pay any attention to and it's not a comfortable thing to ride. Futuwa means that you cannot allow your sense of uh, outward probity to get in the way of the reality of mercy and justice and humanity. And that's what these stories of Imam Ali are all about. So I want to just close by reading a much later text by Abu Hafs uh, Sohrawardi, his Kitab al-Futuwa. Uh, the tradition of Futuwa, that is to say, manly virtue, sacrifice, uh, is something that's hugely important, not just in the context of the Sufi orders in our civilization, uh, and it's to do with the alid virtues of hospitality, of nobility, of sacrifice, of compassion, of justice. So this is how Sohrawardi begins uh, his book. He dies in 1234. In the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, we ask him for help. Praise belongs to Allah, Lord of the two worlds. Greetings and peace be upon our master Muhammad and upon all his family. A man may say, I need a formal legal opinion. What command does the holy law, the shari'at, give? Can one perform this task or not? If that task or business is proper and recommended, then they write a fatwa and give it to him. They say it is lawful to perform that task. It is not a if it is not a proper act, then they do not write out the fatwa, and they say that one must not carry out that act. <coughs> so it is clear <coughs> that a fatwa for a task is good, because nobody can complain when the mufti writes out a fatwa. And here the fatwa and futuwa have the same meaning. He who is among the people of Futuwa must also be good and possess justice, fairness and equity. Another kind of Futuwa. There are many things that are impermissible according to both Futuwa and Moruwa, uh, but may still be permissible under the holy law. Sometimes people find this difficult. Isn't it the case that the law defines what is ethical? Well, the law defines what is actionable and formally assessed. But there may be a lot of things <coughs> where the sharia seems to make something technically legal, but where futuwa, this inward mercy, compassion, justice, may say the thing may have to be looked at differently, but without the law being violated. So, for instance, somebody with a wife might say, it is halal for me, and the fatwa will say, I can take a second wife. That's not the same as saying it is morally right for me to do that. It is merely that it is legal in terms of the outward structures of the religion. So something can be in futuwa, improper, and religiously not right, 
if it's the kind of situation that's going to cause tribulation and where it's an injustice. Uh, but outwardly it can be valid. And this is something that a lot of Muslims nowadays with the kind of legalism that has crept into our understanding of the Sharia and our insistence that it be just a single kind of thing that is Islamic ethics um, have lost sight of. And that's why this alid principle of Futuwa is so important. So, just to repeat what he's saying, there are many things that are impermissible according to Futuwa, but are permissible under the holy law. <coughs> I want to fly first class to Bali, for instance. Shari is not going to say you can't do that. But from the Futuwa point of view, it might be a kind of inappropriate thing. I want a pair of shoes that cost me £2,000. The Sharia is not there to regulate those things. That is in the area of the Mubah, but it may still be improper. So the existence of the outward Sharia does not mean that we cannot be inwardly moral people. It's not an alternative to morality. This does not mean that Futuwa and Moroa contradict the holy law. However, the attribute of the people of Futur is that if someone does something bad to them, then they do something good in return. According to the formality of the Sharia, they can carry out a bad act in retribution for a bad act. And then he gives some examples. The people of Futur have said that if someone slanders you, you should pray for this person. If he deprives you, then at a time when you are in need, you should give him something. If he runs away from you, adhere to him faithfully and do not desert him. If he hits or strikes you, or if he breaks one of your teeth, forgive him. This is Futuwa and Moruwa, and it's the same as the speech of the truth. This is because forgiving is derived from mercy. Justice is derived from the holy law. In the time of Ali, the commander of the faithful, some people brought before him someone who had committed murder. Ali said, you say that retribution is necessary and you cite retribution is prescribed for you in the matter of the murdered. The command of the truth's word is correct. Retribution should be prescribed, but you should have interceded for him. You could have said, don't seize him on the basis of this crime. This crime was his fate. The pen moves from eternity without beginning and God's measuring out, Qadar, has been accomplished. The victim had reached the appointed time of death. Why not forgive this helpless individual who has travelled in the vehicle of ignorance? Let me atone for the blood he has spilled. And so Ali interceded for this person. Some other examples. If some people brought a woman who had committed some crime, he would not accept their accusations until they brought forward four just witnesses. Indeed, he would not accept their complaints even if they found four just witnesses, for he would demand the attestation of the witness's honourable record. He strove so that the sin attributed to that woman could not be proved. In the end, he called for the woman and admonished her and made her afraid. If it became necessary, he would command the legal punishments for the woman. But he would also criticise the witnesses and would not accept any further testimonies from them, saying that they had already given testimony to adultery. In the time of the Holy Prophet, someone came and greeted him and said, Ya Rasulullah, I saw an unknown man with my wife in such and such a house. I locked the door and came here to present my complaint before the Prophet. The Prophet turned away from him and did not reply. The man stated once more, Ya Rasulullah, something terrible has happened to me, give me justice. 
The Holy Prophet gave no answer. Yet again the man said, O Messenger of Allah, something terrible has happened to me. Give me justice. The Prophet turned towards him and asked, Did you see with your own eyes? He replied, Yes, I saw with my own eyes. O Prophet of God, I saw this. The Holy Prophet said to Ali, Amir al-Mu'mineen, O Ali, go to this man's house and look around well. Now there is a question here. Why did he send Ali and not any other person? Why did he send Bilal for other tasks and Ali for this particular task? The answer is that no one possessed the same degree of knowledge as Ali. Anyone else would have seen and would have testified. But Ali was greater than all the others in knowledge and more famous through Futulwat. Since the Holy Prophet had stated there is no fatah but Ali and there is no sword except Dhul-Faqar because a part of Futulwa is veiling. So he sent Ali to go and see and return and testify according to his knowledge because his testimony would be correct but that of anyone else would be wrong. The aim was that the adultery should remain hidden because the Quran says veil faults, forgive sins. So Ali, the commander of the faithful, went to that house, opened the door and went inside. He closed his eyes and wandered in the house. Still with eyes closed, he came out of the house and then returned to the Prophet. He said, I swear to God I didn't see a single person in that house. He spoke the truth, for he had shut his eyes and of course he saw no one. It is for this reason that the Holy Prophet said, I am the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate. This is a whole dimension of our tradition that hasn't really survived the transition into modernity, where Islamic law has become a kind of thing like Western law, a set of statutes, rather than part of a larger ethical system. Yeah, there's so much else here. So, just to close, this is my final thing. Uh, Sohra Waradi likes to, he's already talked about fatwa and futuwa and how they're not necessarily the same thing. <coughs> he also plays with the word futuwa and he finds uh, 27, 25 qualities included within three letters. They have been approved and adopted by all virtuous people and wise men. Of these 25, seven are within the fat of Futuwa, 14 within the Ta, and four within the Wow. So this is his alid understanding of the fullness of chivalric Islam. Those qualities which begin with fat are virtue, fadl, spiritual openings, futur, eloquent language, fasahat, freedom from unnecessary concerns, faragat, <coughs> understanding, faham, Discernment, firasat, action, fi'l. Those which are derived from ta are the following. Tawakkul, trust. Tawbah, repentance. Tawaddu, humility. Tasdiq, sincerity. Tasawwur, the power of imagining. Tahammul, endurance. Tatawwa, voluntary service to others. Tahajjud, reading prayers at night. Talatuf, showing tenderness. Tabarrok, spiritual blessing. Tasarruf, having the power to put spiritual things into practice. Tamkeen, steadfastness. Tafakkur, contemplation. Taskeen, bringing about tranquility. The four others which have been derived from that wow are wafat, loyalty, wara, scrupulousness, walayat, friendship with God, wasla, connection to God. Yeah, and then he goes on with 480 qualities which are also included in these. It's a medieval text, but it's a reminder once again 
that the esoteric deep chivalric wisdom which this principle evokes is something which is actually fundamental to the religion rather than a bit of icing on the cake. And it is the necessary quality of the qadi, it is the necessary quality of the counsellor, it is the necessary quality of the preacher, it is the necessary quality of the person <coughs> who wishes to engage with the principle of rahma and mercy with many Adam, which is why we say aqdahum ali. The one who judged best was Ali, precisely because of this two-pointed sword of Dhul-Faqar. But nowadays we're uh, bumping into each other on our penny farthings. Um, inward dimension is something we discuss a lot less than the outward dimension. For every hijab or beard argument on the internet, how many discussions about purity of heart are there? Not so many. Maybe it should be the other way around. If anything, it's better to have a strong inward life and to do just the basics outwardly. Much better than doing it the other way around. So that's the set of readings that I wanted to share with you about uh, Imam Ali Shahi Mardan as a, I think, not irrelevant contemporary reminder that the religion is not just surface and amplitude, <coughs> but it is depth as well. And it is about an enhancement of our humanity rather than uh, a capturing of our humanity within a particular exoteric uh, paradigm. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us to be benefited from the mashrab of Imam Ali. May he make us people of futuwa, people of muruwa, people to live fully the rich possibilities, not of our outward capacities, but of the inward richness of our being so that we are truly rich in every moment, whatever our outward situation might be, that we be fearless people, that we be humble, humble people, that we be noble people, and inshallah that in the month of Muharram we benefit from the recollection of the Ahlul Bayt and their sacrifices and their nobility and their inward path, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum wa al-afu minkum wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.